0: Morning everyone. Thank you Roy. Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Exodus 32. It's page 90 on the red Pew Bibles. Be really handy if if you could see a copy of God's word this morning. And as you look that up, let me just say three things by way of introduction. The first is that this is our second episode in uh, our Man on the Edge series season 2 our journey through the life of Moses. In season one, which ran for 11 weeks in autumn 2012, we looked at the first two-thirds of Moses's life from when he was zero to approximately 80 years of age. Now we're reliving his final 40 years. By the way, I did mean to say last week, if you would like a copy of season one, if you would like all 11 parts of the first series on a disc uh, Jim Smith has kindly put those together on one disc, so if anybody's interested in that, if you speak to me or Jim afterwards, we'll get you a copy. The second thing I want to say is that according to Buzzline, uh, we're meant to be reading and looking at Deuteronomy 8 today. And so if, uh, if you read that chapter in preparation for this morning, I apologize uh, in that I messed up. And Deuteronomy 8 comes later on in the service, and if we looked at Deuteronomy 8 now, it would kind of knock things out of sync The third thing I want to say by way of introduction is that just over two years ago during our essential word series we did consider the golden calf incident and uh, therefore a lot of what I'm about to say this morning may sound similar to lots of people maybe even a little repetitive but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay so last week we got to Exodus 20. Whenever Moses and Moses or via Moses the Israelites, were given the Ten Commandments. Those core instructions on how the saved, the redeemed, the liberated, the chosen people of God should do life. Here's how God said to do life. And so they were given to rescued people in order to help them do three things. One, live with God. Here's how you live before a holy and a dangerous God. Secondly, here's how you do life together. Here's how you live with one another in community. And thirdly, here's how to be a light to the nations. Live like this and you'll shine. Bright, not like a diamond. And just before God started giving Moses these instructions, the people had already up front committed themselves to obedience. And therefore, whenever or before God even gave Moses these instructions, here's what the people said. They all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And as I say, they said this before hearing what God would say. And so the future looked good, looked really hopeful. In fact, it looked quite exciting. And then in the next three chapters, chapters 21, 22, 23, God continues to give Moses a whole bunch of, of laws and instructions to help this particular community function so that they would know what to do in certain situations for example what do you do if you smack your slave in the mouth and his tooth falls out it's in there what do you do what happens whenever sheep rustling becomes a problem it's in there how do you deal with a witch it's all there it's a fascinating but it's also a slightly uncomfortable read and if you have 15 minutes this afternoon, can I encourage you to read chapters 21, 22 and 23 of, of Exodus. Don't start doing it now. Okay. But this collection of laws, uh, which is commonly called the Book of the Covenant, it deals with a whole range of issues from case law to sexual ethics. And as a whole, it kind of functions to draw out the implications of the Ten Commandments, okay? its introductory uh, Foundation, that's what those chapters are all about, drawing out what these Ten Commandments really mean on the ground. And once again, whenever Moses shared, of all, or shared all these with the people, they signed up. So here in Exodus 24, after Moses has given all these laws in 21, 22, and 23, it says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we're going to do it. And in verse 7, they also said, we will obey. So the future looked really good. People seemed to be on board. They had verbalized their commitment. So God then invites Moses back up the mountain to give him more instructions. And off he goes for 40 days, 40 nights. And during that time, Moses receives detailed plans regarding the construction of the tabernacle. Which is that portable sanctuary where God would dwell among his people. Right at the heart of community. God is going to journey with them. Why? Because he's committed to intimacy. Not remoteness. God is close He's not distant. And those chapters which run from 25 to 31 are amazing. Huge promises and prospects. And maybe sometime we'll come back to them. But while Moses was away for 40 days and 40 nights receiving these instructions, he puts his brother Aaron in charge. And in Exodus 32, we discover what happens while Moses is away. And it beggars belief. Back at base camp, food the Sinai, the people are getting impatient. And they decide, let's do something. And in Exodus 32, verse 1, have a look at it. They say something. It's the first recorded words of the Israelites since chapter 24. We don't know anything of what they said for nine chapters. Here's the first thing they say. Come, they say to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Now, let's go back to the Ten Commandments because it was explicit. You don't do this. You're to have no other gods before me. You're not to make for yourself an idol. And so see all that talk of we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. It's incredibly short-lived. You see, it's one thing to say you'll be obedient. It's a totally different thing to live it out. Actions always speak louder than words. We'll do everything God has said. Show me. Show me. Don't, don't tell me you'll do it. Let me see it lived out. Let me see it fleshed out. Let me see it day by day. Now, deciding to make gods was tragic. But wanting these gods to go before them was pathetic because they were effectively ditching God's leadership and direction. Up to recently, we all know God had gone before them as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He had looked after them in so many tangible ways. He had even carried them on eagles' wings, as Roy reminded us, and as we looked at last week. Here, at the beginning of Exodus 32, the people decided, you know, something's time to move on. We don't need God any longer. We still need to worship because that's how we've all been wired. We're all wired to worship And we all need direction. And so what these people did was they created counterfeit gods and they looked to them to provide a way forward in life. You see, whenever God, the one true God, is not worshipped and not given his place, people don't just stop worshipping. They simply create substitutes. God does get ditched. And something else takes his place. Something else provides focus. Something else offers meaning. And although the behaviour at the beginning of this chapter is almost laughable, it should provoke some serious soul-searching by all who read this story. Because even though we may not melt down our bling and manufacture idols of gold, we still face the temptation to worship counterfeit gods. And our modern manifestations... Of idolatry, whether it's money, success, sex, power, possessions, popularity, or image, to name seven. They're no less foolish. And they're just as harmful to our spiritual well-being. So the question is, what is the focus of our worship? What's the focus of our affection this morning? Where are we looking to for direction? Who are we looking to for direction? The people decide to make gods and as for Moses well again look at verse 1 as for Moses who knows who cares he's been gone for far too long so it's time to move on without him as well we've ditched God let's ditch Moses and it's fascinating how quickly not only God but godly leadership gets dismissed and forgotten and so the people turned to Aaron and incredibly, Aaron goes with the flow. In fact, he takes the lead in making the golden calf. And then, and he, this bits incredible. Then, in some bizarre attempt to bring God into this blatant disobedience, he suggests that they build an altar in front of the idol, hold a festival to the Lord, and get everybody to make sacrifices and present their fellowship offerings. And you kind of wonder what is going on in people's heads here. And yet when you think about it there is something disturbingly familiar about this mindset and practice. Where people attempt to kind of bolt God on. Or add some God talk and religious practice alongside an idolatrous lifestyle. So we kind of follow other gods but then we bolt God on and talk the talk as a way of kind of justifying or making ourselves feel better about the wrong choices we all know we're making and it doesn't work and it can't work and as these people are trying to make it work god reacts and the result and as a result of their behavior God now faces three major decisions. People have no longer any decisions to face. God has three to face. And these decisions and how they are influenced by Moses shape the rest of the Moses story. Shape the rest of God's story. Shape the rest of your story and mine. These are watershed moments. And the first decision that God has to make is whether or not to destroy these people. You see, to say God was angry is an understatement. Even the shift in pronouns reveals his depth of feeling. Look at verse 7. Here's what he says. Moses, now get this, go down to your people. Whom you brought out of Egypt and have become corrupt. They're no longer my people, do you notice? It's no longer I who brought them out. It's no longer I whom carrying them in eagle's wings. Go down to your people, Moses, who you brought out. And as God watches this freak show, and that's what it is, He reacts. Now whether the people thought that God wouldn't see what they were doing because he was too preoccupied with Moses up the mountain, I don't know. But God makes it clear that he's seen these people. Not only has he seen them, but he's heard every word they have said. As one commentator has written, idolatry and all kinds of intentional sin are the result of living as if God cannot see. Can kind of live in a society in a world where people just get on with life and think, God, oh, well, listen, God, God isn't interested in what I'm doing or what I'm saying. God sees and God hears. His eyes scan the whole earth, according to 2 Chronicles 16. God misses nothing. You cannot keep a secret from God. If these people thought that God would overlook this or leave them alone, they were badly mistaken. And so God tells Moses. To leave him alone. Why? And this is sobering. Leave me alone Moses. So that my anger may burn against them. And that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. In other words. I'm taking this lot out. And I'm starting again, and I'm starting again with just you. Sounds a wee bit like what happened with Noah. Now, how do you handle this aspect of God's character? His searing anger, his wrath, his judgment. Do you avoid it? Or do we tone it down? God is a loving father but he's also a wrathful judge. Most people know John 3:16 for God so loved the world but we're not so familiar or comfortable with John 3:36 whoever rejects the son will not see life god's wrath remains on him or her. God cannot tolerate wrong and he won't forever judgment for unconfessed sin is inevitable. No getting away from that. But what Moses did next made a massive difference to another way ominous situation. Look at verse 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Now he didn't make excuses for the Israelites. There were no excuses for their behavior. He didn't question the justice of God. God had every right to be angry every rate but he did ask God please God turn from your face anger and he did this if you look at the verses that follow he did this by reminding God which seems a bizarre thing to do but reminding God of his reputation as a redeemer of Israel listen Lord you miraculously rescued this lot So why you want to wipe them out now And secondly, can you not remember the promises God that you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you would make their descendants numerous, not extinct? And then the narrative says, and here is the outcome of God's first decision. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, I made the point two years ago. Lots of people struggle with this idea of God relenting. It sounds like, or it comes across as God gives in, God backs down, God couldn't go through with it, God lacks backbone. And yet when you scratch a bit deeper, you discover, and this is critical, you discover that the basic meaning of this verb is the Lord had compassion or the Lord felt sorrow. And that makes so much sense based on what the Bible teaches us about the uh, character of God. Yes, God was angry. Yes, the people did deserve to face the natural consequences of their sin and of God's justice. And they deserve to face all that right now. But God's heart breaks at the prospect of this. And his sorrow was expressed. How in compassion, in relenting. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And this idea. So God relented. But there's another dilemma here to face and challenge challenges our thinking. And that is it concerns the role or the influence of Moses. If Moses, think about this, if Moses had not sought God's favor, if he had not intervened, if he had not. Stood in the gap, would God have relented? I don't know. Anyway, Moses must have been relieved he did. And so, with the two tablets of stone in hand, containing the covenant etched on them, he And Joshua, it seems, an up and coming potential leader, head down the mountain to face the music. Literally, to face the music. And based on what they see, which is just how God describes it, Moses experiences the exact same feeling as God. Burns. Here is a man on the edge. His anger burns. We read he smashes the tablets to smithereens. Then he grinds the golden calf to powder. He puts it in water and he makes the Israelites drink it. See Moses is not so compassionate. And then he confronts his brother. He confronts Aaron. And what does Aaron do? Aaron points the finger at others and lies through his teeth. And he comes out with the classic, look at verse 24. Moses, I threw, all this, I threw all this jewelry into the fire and out came a calf. Whereas the truth was, if you read earlier, Aaron fashioned and formed the melted Gold into a calf. See, it's interesting. How whenever someone who should have known better, how whenever someone with a faith is confronted about their sin, challenged about their behavior, they either blame others or attempt to justify their choices or simply deny any part in the wrong day. I know I've done that someone's come and challenged me, I immediately head for excuses and denial. Aaron claimed that the calf had somehow magically self-generated. He doesn't appear to accept his role or his responsibility in the rebellion and there's no sign of repentance. Although what subsequently happens to Aaron is a scandal. A scandal of grace, that is but that's for another time. Moses then gives the people an opportunity to repent. And he stands at the entrance of the camp and he says this, have a look at it. Who is for the Lord? Come to me. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Only the Levites respond. And then they help to restore some sort of law and order. And how do they do this? And this is difficult for us to get our heads around. How do they do this? They do it by killing three thousand Israelites, according to verse twenty-five. The people are out of control. They've all become a laughing stock in front of their enemies, which means God has become a laughing stock. Clearly, they're determined to persist in their disobedience because it's only the Levites that say, "Okay, we're for you, Moses. We're for the Lord." And as I say, although parts of this or aspects of this are very difficult to process and understand, the reality is that whenever people continue to live apart from God and without God in blatant rebellion against God and against his ways, and I don't know any other way of saying this, but death and judgment are then inevitable. To never repent of your sin has massive and eternal consequences. For the sake of this community, something extreme had to happen, and it did. And some kind of order was restored. But now comes God's second decision, nearly done. Would his presence go with these people from here or not? Am I going to go with them? Well, initially it looked like he wouldn't. Flick over to Exodus 33 verse 3. Where God says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) And when the people heard this, they were obviously totally distraught. And in steps Moses again. And this time, and incredibly, because as a result of Moses' intervention, God reverses his decision. And he then confirms, verse 14, verse 17, okay, I will now go with them. But hang on a minute, God, you just said you weren't going to go with them. I'm just saying I can stand on the promises of your word. So what alters God's decision this time? What was the turning point? And based on the text, the only reason that I can offer, the only reason that makes any sense to me Is that God reverses his decision on the basis of Moses' personal friendship with God. Look at verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. There's something very beautiful and moving about that. God responds positively to Moses' request that he reverses his decision based on the intimacy of their friendship. And then God says. I will do the very thing you've asked Moses. Because why? I'm not pleased with them. <laughs> but I am pleased with you. And I love this. But I know you by name. I know you by name Moses. Moses. The idea and the offer of her friendship with God runs right through the Bible. And I know that many people here this morning would describe themselves as friends of God. Who have that kind of relationship. Moses was a friend. And that meant connection, that meant conversation, that meant a desire to please God. And based on their personal relationship, God's presence goes with the people. And finally, comes his third decision Would he forgive the people or not? Was there hope for these people? Was there a way back from their outrageous behavior? And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7a, we find the answer. And these words, and I've said it before, and and I don't really apologize for saying it again, and I'll probably say it lots and lots during my time here. These words are so fundamentally important to the whole story that they get repeated time and time again in the Bible itself. You cannot cannot ever overemphasize the importance of these words. Here is a snapshot of who God is. Here's God's character. Here's God's heart in a couple of verses. And the hope that is locked up in these words is life changing. God passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed he was the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And two years ago, I shared an image that I know a number of you found incredibly helpful to see how these five expressions and descriptions all relate to each other, And I want you to picture a triangle and at either side of the base are the first and the last statements about God. And then halfway up on either side of the second and fourth statements and finally at the top is the middle statement. And the point of this picture is to suggest that the first and last statements go together, the second and fourth go together and the third is critical to all of them. And if you start at the top... This idea of God abounding in love and faithfulness implies a constant giving. There is an abundance of love that God has to give. If we see this triangle as depicting the heart of God, it's almost like a volcano that is constantly exploding in an overflow of love and faithfulness that just keeps spilling out over his people. And if you hear nothing else this morning, just remember this, that God's love is just spilling out constantly to you. And in the middle end, we find that God's love is maintained to thousands. In other words, it lasts, it perseveres, it keeps giving, it keeps flowing. But alongside that is this fact, that God is slow to anger. You see, if God immediately judged every time we messed up, every time I sinned, every time I did something or thought something wrong, I would be wiped out in a split second. But at Sinai, God says, do you know something, David? I'm slow to anger I'm long suffering I'm extraordinarily patient with you doesn't say, doesn't mean God will never express his anger, God as I've said will someday judge, justice will be done, the guilty will be punished, but thank God for all our sakes, he is slow to anger And then the final phrase. Because the reason God is slow to anger in spite of our sin is because he's gracious and he's compassionate and he's willing to forgive wickedness. He's willing to forgive rebellion. He's willing to forgive sin. God doesn't ignore it. He forgives it. All of it. It's why there's three words used there. Wickedness, rebellion, sin, anything you've done that is wrong. God is willing to forgive whenever we come to him in repentance. Do you know, I love that picture, this triangle of God's mercy, but more than that, I love what God has revealed about himself to us. There is a way back for these people. There is a way back for me. There is a way back for us. There is hope, forgiveness is possible. And as Moses discovers this, and this is where I'm finishing, as Moses discovers this, And before we take communion and as we prepare to take communion, when Moses heard this about his God and about the way God deals with wayward golden calf worshiping people, Moses immediately throws himself on the ground and worships. And he asks God, God, please will you travel with us? Please will you forgive our sin? And in light of this truth, can I invite you to worship this morning as you take communion? I'm not suggesting you throw yourself on the ground and worship. You may want to kneel. You may want to do something that just says, God, you are amazing. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. Maintaining love to thousands. Compassionate and Gracious forgiving my sin. Thank you, God.